Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 8, Castaways. I'm Brandon Seal. By the time they reached Galveston Island in November of 1528, the surviving members of the Panfilo de Narvaez expedition no longer harbored any pretensions to being conquistadors. Even calling them expeditionaries seems a bit generous, given that they didn't know where they were or where they were trying to go. The Narvaez expeditionaries were, most properly speaking, mere castaways by this point. Shipwreck survivors barely holding on to life on a Gulf Coast barrier island somewhere near modern-day Galveston, Texas. Indeed, Cabeza de Vaca would title the second edition of his account Naufragios, a term that we can translate literally as shipwrecks, but that more broadly also means calamities or misfortunes. Because that is what Cabeza de Vaca's fellow castaways had mostly suffered since they had landed in North America. After having traipsed through a large swath of the Florida Peninsula and lost communication with their ships, the Narvaez expeditionaries had been forced to venture back into the Gulf of Mexico on five dubious watercraft of their own construction. After a few weeks of drifting west along the northern Gulf Rim, the Mississippi River scattered the flotilla and eventually tossed Cabeza de Vaca's raft onto Galveston Island, or perhaps nearby Follett Island, but we'll stick with Galveston for convenience. There on Galveston Island, the expeditionaries had been discovered by a hundred or so natives, caboques, they called themselves in their own language, who were so moved by the old-worlder's pitiful condition that they actually cried when they saw them. They had mercy on them, and actually physically carried the exhausted expeditionaries on their backs to their village on the other side of the island, where they fed the 40 or so survivors with food, fires, and a blowout party. All but five of the expeditionaries, that is. Five of them remained convinced that the Cavoque's plan was to sacrifice them, and so they'd stayed back on the beach alone. None of the expeditionaries were sacrificed, however. In addition to food and shelter, the expeditionaries who had gone to the Cavoque village were given yet another gift. That next morning, Cabeza de Vaca noticed one of the villagers wearing some sort of European-made trinket around his neck. He and his men had lost everything when their raft had overturned in the shallow surf, including their clothes even, which meant that the trinket couldn't have come from his naked and impoverished crew. So he asked the native villager, by signs, where he had gotten his little piece of adornment from. The Kaboke responded, also by signs, that there were others on the island, quote, other men like us, end quote. Shocked, Cabeza de Vaca immediately dispatched two of his men to go find out who the other, quote, men like us on Galveston Island were. And soon enough, they ran into 48 or so of their fellow expeditionaries, who had also come out looking for Cabeza de Vaca. This band of castaways seemed to be in slightly better condition than Cabeza de Vaca's crew, if for no other reason than that they still had their clothes on. Cabeza de Vaca's men brought them back into the Cavoca camp, where the two groups of expeditionaries were joyfully reunited. And it wasn't just any other group of expeditionaries. It was the raft commanded by Captains Andres Dorantes and Alonso Castillo. Cabeza de Vaca, Dorantes, and Castillo had worked well together in the past. Cabeza de Vaca and Castillo had actually twice co-commanded scouting expeditions back in Florida, with Dorantes along for one of those as well. Cabeza de Vaca and Dorantes seemed to have organized a counterattack and won the day against a group of natives that had attacked them near Biloxi, Mississippi. And Dorantes and Castillo, 
apparently worked well enough together that they had been tasked with co-commanding the raft that had just shipwrecked five miles down the shoreline from Cabeza de Vacas. Perhaps it's no surprise that the three men got along. They came from comparatively similar backgrounds. The youngest and highest born of the three was Alonso Castillo. Born in the town of Salamanca, he was the son of a caballero doctor. He was himself ambitious too, and so he'd followed in the steps of his brother and a cousin who had come to the New World to fill important posts in the Castilian bureaucracy. Castillo had actually sold off part of his estate to buy a captainship in Narvaez's expedition, though he had evidently proven his abilities as an officer since then as well, even if he remained relatively young, in his 20s perhaps. Andres Dorantes was the lowest born of the three, coming from the Hidalgo class, to which Cabeza de Vaca is also sometimes assigned, though it seems that more accurately he was technically a caballero, like Castillo. Dorantes was a native of Bejar, and like Cabeza de Vaca, he had spent the previous decade on the battlefield, including helping to put down the Comunero revolt back in Castile, which Cabeza de Vaca had also participated in. Durantes wasn't entirely without resources, though, and in fact he owed his captaincy to a recommendation from a local duke to Narvaez. He had the resume to fully support the recommendation, however, and in fact he'd already proven his mettle at least once on this expedition, in particular back on the shores of Biloxi back in episode 5. With Andres Dorantes was a tall, bearded, Arabic-speaking, black African named Esteban. Esteban has become a favorite of modern students of Cabeza de Vaca's story, and with good reason. He was young at the time of the expedition, we assume anyway, partly because of what we'll see his body endure, but partly because almost every time he appears in Cabeza de Vaca's account, he's referred to as Estebanico, or Little Esteban. Of course, they may have used the diminutive here just because he was a slave, Durantes' slave, to be precise. All that we really know about Esteban's background is that he was from a town on the Moroccan coast, Azenmur, and had been purchased by Durantes in the slave markets of Seville. That he spoke Arabic suggests that he had perhaps been raised a Muslim, but his Christian name, Esteban, and the fact that he'd even been permitted to accompany Durantes to the New World suggests that he had been baptized at some point as a Christian. This was Esteban's third continent to experience slavery on, and here, as elsewhere, he proved himself to be remarkably adaptable. He seems to have had a natural aptitude for languages and for navigating the different customs of different peoples. A viceroy of New Spain would later describe him as a, quote, persona de razón, end quote, which sounds patronizing to us now, but I prefer to read that as a really remarkable compliment about a really remarkable person. And so, reunited here on Galveston Island, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Durantes, Esteban, and the other 80 or so surviving expeditionaries wasted no time in coming up with a plan. Unfazed by their failed relaunch of Cabeza de Vaca's raft the previous day, an effort which had left five men dead, actually, the group immediately set about trying to repair Durantes and Castillo's raft. It proved to be unsalvageable as well, however, so they started developing a plan B. They would just walk down the coast to Panuco in modern-day Tamaulipas. But there was a problem with this plan as well. Never mind that they didn't really know how to live off of this land. The bigger problem was that most of the expeditionaries couldn't swim, which is a pretty big problem when it comes to crossing the bays and rivers that crisscross the Texas coastline. Yet these were the ultimate go-ahead men, men who believed that anything was possible 
and they were anxious to do something. The best they could do for now, they decided, was to send their four most able-bodied swimmers down the coast to try to bring back help for the rest of the men. And so with that, four of their party were sent on their way, while the rest settled into what they knew would probably be a lengthy stay on Galveston Island. Throughout the rest of November and December of 1528, the expeditionaries began to grow more comfortable in the villages of their Gaboke and Han hosts. The Han were the name of the tribe that held Durantes and Castillo's men. They were relatives of the Caboques who held Cabeza de Vacas. They spoke the same language. Cabeza de Vaca tells us that the natives of Galveston Island generally went about naked. Only the women occasionally covered their private parts with a kind of moss, and the younger girls sometimes wore deerskins. But they weren't very prolific hunters, which meant that they only acquired such hides, quote, by chance, end quote, according to Cabeza de Vaca. They were mostly foragers who moved with the seasons, collecting blackberries and oysters on the mainland during the spring months, capturing snakes, lizards, and rodents to eat during the summer, and harvesting fish and roots off of Galveston Island during the lean winter months. Of course, often enduring long stretches of hunger in between when the foraging went poorly. Which made their generosity to the now 80 or so aliens in their midst during that December of 1528 all the more remarkable. Their social structure was pretty typical for what Cabeza de Vaca would find in most of native Texas. Quote, there is no chief among them. All who have the same lineage live together, end quote. Which is to say that their organization was determined by a combination of heredity and mutual convenience. According to Cabeza de Vaca, they viewed the elderly as somewhat of a nuisance, as people who, quote, have passed their time and they only take up space and deprive their children of resources, end quote. The men did the hunting what little of it they could, and brought back their kills to the women to clean. In truth, it seems that the women did almost all the work in Caboque and Han societies, starting before sunup and then working until after sundown to forage for roots, scrape hides, and to tend the ovens. Children of both sexes, by contrast, were doted upon. Quote, more than any other people in the world, these people love their children, end quote. The Mitchell Ridge archaeological site on Galveston Island demonstrates pretty quantifiably how the natives of the Texas coast valued the lives of men, children, and women, respectively. Male burials are accompanied by an average of 4.38 grave goods, bows, arrows, personal items, those kind of things. Children, regardless of sex, are accompanied by an average of 3.3 grave goods, and women, just one grave good per person. But in these tribes, as elsewhere, there was another kind of person. Medicine men, or shamans, held a sort of unique status apart from the traditional structure of the tribe. They were exempt from most work, and they were allowed to take multiple wives. They were typically burned at their deaths instead of buried. And even here, early in the narrative when he's first encountering these medicine men, Cabeza de Vaca notes that the prevailing custom for a patient healed by a shaman was to give him everything that the cured person owned. Of course, ownership was a pretty loose concept in these tribes. Property was essentially held in common. Quote, they are very liberal toward each other with what they have, end quote, as the expeditionaries were finding out. Yet as November turned to December, and December to January 1529, in what was apparently a remarkably cold year, Galveston Island struggled to support the burden of the 80 or so additional mouths that had landed on our shores. 
Soon, the roots and fish began to give out. And worse, the castaways, because of their lack of familiarity with the land, were nearly useless. They didn't know how to grub roots or catch fish, so they were more of a burden than a blessing to the small tribes that were keeping them alive. Of course, the expeditionaries who had chosen to go live with the natives in their village fared far better than the five who had remained on the beach. These five were so stubborn in their refusal to rejoin their companions in the village, and yet so unable to forage for themselves, that they eventually began to just die of starvation. They, quote, arrived at such extremes that they ate each other, one after the other, until there was only one left, who, because he was alone, had no one to eat him, end quote. At some point, their companions had stopped checking on them, and so the Cavoques seemed to have been the first to discover the cannibal party going on at the beach, and they were horrified. What kind of sick people would do this, especially when their companions were all being fed and cared for in the village nearby? The natives' horror is particularly ironic, given that later Europeans would frequently accuse native dwellers of the Texas coast with cannibalism. If true, it may be that they had learned it from these five Castilians. Who knows? In either way, the incident radically changed the perception that the Cavoques had of their guests. And so once again, ironically, it may have been the five beach-dwelling expeditionaries' mistrust of the natives that led to those same natives losing trust in the expeditionaries at large. To add to the natives' horror, soon a mysterious stomach illness began to ravage the island's population. Native Americans, as we all know, lacked immunities to many of the old world diseases that the castaways carried with them. Though in this case, the disease seemed to be equally devastating to natives and expeditionaries alike. Half of the island's native population was soon dead, along with 65 of the 80 expeditionaries. This, of course, aggravated the food shortage on the island even further. And one particular custom of the Cavocas then made things exponentially worse. The traditional mourning period amongst the Cavocas, when one of their loved ones died, was three months or more. And during that time, the bereaved weren't supposed to work. They were supposed to be provided for by the rest of the tribe. But since there was no family unaffected by this epidemic, there was no one left to work or to bring food to the grieving survivors, much less the expeditionaries. Stepping out of the narrative for a moment, we here in 2020 actually have some pretty unique perspective now on the second-order effects of pandemics. What I mean is that, obviously, there are deaths in these kind of situations, but in some way, death is simple and straightforward. It's the larger effects on society and on the ability of the afflicted community to continue generating resources that you really don't appreciate until you've lived through it. Of course, perspective is important here. With the great Colombian exchange of diseases in the New World, we're not talking about a 2% mortality rate or whatever we have today. We're talking about a 50 or 75% mortality rate. And that part of it is still unfathomable to us, I think. But in either situation, a pandemic shuts down an economy. And when your economy is based on subsistence foraging, a few days of not working is devastating. Not to mention the emotional effects of separation, something I never would have thought about. But what does the tragedy of not being able to share your loved one's last moments do to a society's belief system, to their morality, to their religion? Especially in these small native bands along the Texas coast, being cut off from this community 
would be a fate worse than death for some. And naturally, when this kind of apocalyptic tragedy visits a society, the blame game follows soon thereafter. And it didn't take long for the Kabokes to make the connection between the strangers in their midst and the disease that had arrived at about the same time they had. And so they concluded, perhaps correctly, that the expeditionaries were the ones causing the illness and death. And they came to a further, relatively logical conclusion to fix the problem. Quote, they agreed among themselves to kill those of us who remained, end quote. Which by this point numbered only about 15 expeditionaries, including Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Durantes, Esteban, and Lope de Oviedo, that hardiest member of Cabeza de Vaca's crew. Cabeza de Vaca got wind of this plot from the Indian who was, quote, keeping him, end quote. And already you can see in that language a sort of shift in the expeditionary status from honored guests to dependents of the Cabocas. Cabeza de Vaca's keeper, we won't call him a master yet, was the one who actually most ardently defended the expeditionaries, pointing out to his fellow tribesmen that the disease was actually taking an even greater toll on the expeditionaries. If they had power over such disease, he pointed out, they wouldn't have allowed 80% of their own people to die from it. At a few points in his narrative, Cabeza de Vaca refers to Native Americans as gente sin razón, or men without reason. Here's an example from back on the beach when the Cabocas are weeping for the expeditionaries in their sad state. Quote, To see these men, so without reason, so crude and so brutish, feeling such pain on our behalf, only made me and the others of my company lament the more deeply our own situation. End quote. Now, read a certain way, this seems like a kind of obnoxious sentiment on Cabeza de Vaca's part. I mean, here you have this Eurocentric ass insulting these natives who are expressing what ought to be a very universal human emotion and ought to be taking it as very real proof that they can, in fact, reason out what is going on and feel empathy for it. But what I want to posit here is that Cabeza de Vaca isn't actually using the term men of reason pejoratively in one way or another. We modern readers like to think that reason is the end-all be-all, so we naturally hear it as an insult to say that someone else doesn't have any. But in a way, that's the ultimate form of Eurocentrism, to judge everyone's intellectual abilities by how we in particular think about things. And I don't think that's what Cabeza de Vaca is doing. Because he definitely doesn't believe that Native Americans can't think. Right after he uses the phrase, gente sin razón, in fact, he shows the Cabocas debating amongst themselves, reasoning through, as it were, the question of whether the expeditionaries were to blame or not for the stomach disease running rampant through their camp. What becomes clear, however, is that the Cabocas reason differently. To determine whether they should kill the expeditionaries or not, they decide to put them to their own kind of test. They tell the expeditionaries to go cure the disease which they were pretty sure they had caused. Which, to be honest too, isn't an entirely irrational thought. You break it, you buy it. Or maybe it was the case that since the expeditionaries weren't doing any real work around the village, kind of like their medicine men, they figured they might as well see if they could at least heal like medicine men as well. Either way, the challenge remained. Go fix this disease which you've caused. They told the expeditionaries to go lay hands on the sick, to blow on them, to rub rocks on them or whatever, but just fix this damage that you've caused. This, of course, struck the expeditionaries as ridiculous. Quote, we laughed at this, saying that it must be a joke and that we didn't know how to heal people, end quote. 
repeating that they didn't really have this power and that, frankly, rubbing rocks on people isn't the way that people get cured anyway. In response, a caboque threw a bit of European-style reasoning right back at Cabeza de Vaca. Quote, Then, an Indian told me that I didn't know what I was saying when I told him that the things he knew were wrong. Because the stones and other things that grow in the field have their own medicine, and that he, simply by passing a hot stone over the stomach of a sick person, could ease their pain and cure them, and that we as men certainly had more medicine and more power than these stones, end quote. Are you saying you're less capable than a rock, Cabeza de Vaca? What I love about this episode is the juxtaposition. It's the immediate contrast. It's right after Cabeza de Vaca describes the natives as, quote, gente sin razón, men without reason, a caboque turns it around on him and begins questioning Cabeza de Vaca's reason. And Cabeza de Vaca takes it to heart. It's why, presumably, he includes this episode in his narrative. Because it reminded him of his need to remain open to new things, to survive in this new world. You know, maybe he was always wired this way, or or maybe just his state of extreme nakedness and vulnerability made him so here. But from this point forward in the narrative, he will certainly act like he believes that every native he meets can teach him something, no matter how primitive they seem, and no matter how different the world they come from. And by the way, just to hit this point on the nose, There's a direct analog for us in the present here as well. How different is it to believe that you can't learn anything from a bunch of backward hunter-gatherers than it is to believe that we can't learn something from historical figures just because the great moral causes of their day aren't the same as the great moral causes of ours? And so returning to the healing challenge, Cabeza de Vaca once again embraced his nakedness and decided to be open-minded to try his hand as a Native American medicine man. First, he asked the Cavocas to teach him what their medicine men did to heal. They told him how they passed their hands over the patient's body, how they blew on the aching joints softly. They showed him how to make a few cuts on the skin near where the pain was located, and then to suck the pain out through the incisions. And lastly, they taught him to cauterize the wound with fire, something that Cabeza de Vaca found novel and effective. And so then, Cabeza de Vaca turned to his first patient and imitated these techniques as best he could, but he also added a touch of his own. And interestingly, it isn't some piece of reason that he pulls out of his quiver here. The detail he adds is an element of his own faith. Quote, the manner in which we cured was to make the sign of the cross and blow on the patient and to pray in our father and a hail Mary and to beseech as best we could to our Lord God that he give him health and inspire our host to treat us well, end quote. And to the astonishment of all, not least to Cabeza de Vaca and his companions, it worked. Quote, Our Lord God in his mercy willed that all those for whom we had prayed and made the sign of the crossover told the others that they were now healthy and well, end quote. The illness sweeping through the Caboque village seemed to abate. The surviving expeditionaries, maybe just 15 or so by now, were celebrated for their deeds and given extra food and hides, for a few days anyway. Because once again, the general scarcity of resources, and now of people, meant that both the Cabocas and the expeditionaries were soon starving again. It's a bit puzzling to some readers of Cabeza de Vaca's account why he and his companions didn't continue their faith healing, given how amply it was rewarded. 
Because of this, some actually think that Cabeza de Vaca is projecting this episode back in time, anachronistically, that his faith healing didn't actually start in earnest until much later on. But there's another explanation that could work here too. It's that the expeditionaries took their faith healing seriously. They weren't certain it would always work, and they didn't want to test it. Because it's high stakes. Think about the downside. What happens if it turns out that they couldn't heal someone? What value would their lives have had then? At the end of March of 1529, the now decimated Kavoke and Han tribes announced their intention to cross back over to the Texas mainland as a part of their normal seasonal migrations. The surviving 15 expeditionaries were now faced with a decision, however. They knew that they were pretty useless hands amongst these tribes, and would be even more so in the new terrain of the mainland, where they'd have to start from scratch and learning how to forage. More than likely, they would all be reduced to hauling firewood on their sunburned backs, or digging for roots until their fingers bled, then hanging around the edges of camp like dogs in hope of scraps. And so, the survivors resolved to leave, to make their way toward the new Spanish settlement on the Rio Panuco, near modern-day Tampico, wherever that might be. All but three of them, that is. Cabeza de Vaca, Lope de Oviedo, and the expedition's notary were so sick that they were barely conscious by this point. The physicians, it seems, were unable to heal themselves. Quote, If there was anything left that could have given me hope, that illness was enough to take it from me, end quote, Cabeza de Vaca later confessed. He was on death's door, and he knew it, and he was in no condition to travel the many miles that lay between them and the Rio Panuco. Or maybe he finally had just been broken by the whole experience. Quote, It seemed to me impossible at times to continue on, though I would find myself in much greater hunger and necessity later on, end quote. Which seems to be a way of saying that if he had known what still awaited him, he might not have bothered to hold on to life on the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode at rivardreport.com, home for nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Also, please go like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. We're telling old stories in new ways here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache. is composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstripe. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about the sources we've used in this series, as well as about us generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.